glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Amen. Would you stand then with us, please? Revelation chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 20. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Thank you. you may be seated. And... Uh, Again, I'm not sure if we'll get all the way through this tonight or not. I'll not make that my ultimate goal. We'll make the goal seeing what's here and getting something from it. But if we move along, then we shall. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things that need to be commented on uh, as we go through this uh, to give some explanation moving forward in the book and give some explanation uh, perhaps looking backwards, some things that, uh, that help us have some understanding of why we do some things the way we do. Uh, but uh, anyway, last week we dealt with, as I said, John's character seen in verse 9. He said, I, John, who also am your brother... In companion and tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. If we're going to suffer, this is why we would want to suffer. I believe this with all my heart. There is suffering in our lives that we don't have grace for. Suffering as a result of sin in the sense of unrepentant sin, unforgiven sin, there's not grace for that. Uh, there's grace for the consequences of sin, if you know you have the pardon from God. You notice David in the Old Testament, the price or penalty had been paid for his sin, yet the consequences were consequences. There is sowing and there is reaping. And I believe there is grace from God. You see this in Scripture. David had grace from God to deal with the, the consequences of his sin because he had pardon for his sin. In contrast to that, Saul did not. Saul was feeling the consequences of his sin He had rebelled against God and was losing the kingdom, but he wouldn't repent. He would not agree with God that he was in the wrong, 
And so it just kept spiraling down for Saul, and you don't find grace there for him. And so uh, anyway, um, I don't know how I got off on all of that, except to say John was suffering for the right reason. Uh, we are not to suffer for evil, for doing evil. When we sin and there is evil upon us because we've transgressed the law of the land or done something sinful, uh, that, that's hard on the conscience. But I believe this, when you know you're suffering because you've been loyal to Christ, that only deepens your love for the Lord and increases your joy. That's hard to explain, but it's true. We can rejoice and be exceeding glad when we know we're doing, if we're suffering, we're suffering for righteousness' sake. There is something very affirming in the conscience of a Christian when that opportunity is given. And so sometimes we fear suffering is what I think I'm driving at. We fear the pain or the difficulty that comes with suffering for the Lord. May I say this? Suffering for the Lord is as much a part of your Christian life as being sanctified by the Lord. We are called. How many of us know we are called to suffer? It's a call of God. How many of you are are regretful that God called you to salvation? I'm not. How many of you regret that God called you to sanctified living? No, that's brought me nothing but joy. How many of you regret that God has called you to service? I don't don't regret. I, I find great joy in serving the Lord. We ought not regret being called to suffer either. There is joy. You, you hear it in John. You don't hear regret in him. You hear rejoicing. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He can with good conscience say, here's why I'm suffering and, uh, and move forward from there. So John's character seen his humility, his honor, his holiness. We dealt with all that last week. Beginning in verse 10 now, we see... Well, we'll call first for those of you who take notes if you want to, if you're writing down the outline and for my own clarity of thought. John's comprehension we're going to deal with in verses 10 through 16. His ears are going to open. He's going to hear something behind him. And I believe verse 10 is key to what he hears and sees. I was thinking about this today uh, in discussing Bible with people. Uh, that is my life. So this week alone, I've had multiple Bible discussions with different people. Some are saved, some are lost, some are lost and claim to be saved, some are saved and not right with God, some are saved in serving God, living for God. But in all of those conversations, I've had multiple times in the last week where you get the deer in the headlights look. You know know what I mean? And for me, I have to review and make sure that I am communicating clearly what's being said, but there are occasions when a truth is communicated and someone goes... And you realize the problem is not their mental capacity. They're intelligent people. It's a heart capacity. I believe with all of my being, if you had to choose tonight one of these two tools, uh, if you're going to approach your Bible, either being filled with the Spirit of God and having a close relationship of fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God and little education intellectually, or a, a, a deep grasp of the original languages, and you had to choose one of the two, I don't even hesitate which one you should ask for, the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. You say, why not both? I believe that's possible, but very rare. Very rarely when we have these tools will we rely on this one. Amen? Now, if you're relying on this one, you know how to use this tool. You rely on the Holy Spirit of God, you can learn how to use The Apostle Paul is an illustration very intellectually adept and intelligent man, but he let the Spirit of God rule in his heart and he knew how to use the intellectual tools he was given. By and large, the disciples, the apostles, were not intellectually high in their understanding. 
They were considered by their culture ignorant and unlearned men, but they were filled with the Spirit of God. And so I don't find that John says, I was, you know, I was remembering all my education on the Lord's Day because I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And again, I want to be very careful. We are not against education. We are to read the Word of God. We are to study the Word of God. We are to understand it and rightly divide it. But I find a pattern that when we rely merely on physical, intellectual, mental skills, that's flesh. And flesh cannot comprehend spiritual things. We, the natural man judgeth not the things of God, discerneth not, knoweth not the things of God, First Corinthians 2 tells us. And so uh, John here emphasizes he's about to unfold. He's, I'm going to get some revelation. I'm starting to tell you what the Lord told me. And he prefaces it with the spiritual state he was in. I was in the spirit. What does that mean? We dealt with that just a little bit last week. We're to pray in the spirit. And that, we dealt with the fact that little word in carries the idea of a, of, a, of a relation or a position of rest. Meaning I was in reliance upon and submitted to and in agreement with and in harmony with and in unity with the spirit. The, 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 the opposite side of that to not be in the spirit as a Christian would be to be quenching the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God is taking the Bible, lifting truth from the pages of Scripture, applying it to our lives. To be in the Spirit is to receive what He's giving us from Scripture in application to our lives as believers in Christ. To be quenching the Spirit would be to pour water of excuses on His reproofs, His correction. Remember the Bible is for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Holy Spirit will take the Bible then and teach us what is true. He will reprove us or, or correct us, uh, reprove us for what is wrong and correct us and tell us how to get it right. So to quench him is to learn how to dismiss the application of the word of God to our life. I had this thought today and, uh, and I'll try to, to, to spell it out succinctly to you. But there are doctrines in God's word. There are truths in God's word that bring the faith you have in Jesus Christ and turn that faith in him into actions in your life. There are doctrines in the Bible. Let me give you an example. The assurance of salvation will thrust you forward spiritually. Once you are certain that Jesus Christ has saved you, you can nail down, I am a child of God. And as a child of God, then, there are certain things that I need to appreciate. And there are certain things I need to do in behavior, but not because I'm trying to be a child of God, but because I am one. So let me tell you, because assurance of your salvation, resting in Christ, will move you forward into obedience. Guess what our adversary fights against? That precious doctrine of knowing that you have eternal life. He will fight that. Your flesh will fight it. Because you know what? Your flesh understands. What if I know that a child of God should behave this way. So if I get settled, I'm a child of God. Something's got to change. Sometimes our flesh enjoys doubting. You know why? It leaves us in limbo. We don't have to move. We can keep living carnal lives and say, well, maybe I'm just not saved. You say, that's stupid. Well, it may be stupid, but the flesh isn't very smart. It just wants its way. And the devil will feed that with his lies. And so the assurance of salvation, there are doctrine, there's teaching and doctrine in the Bible about separated holy living. I've watched people play all kinds of gymnastics with the Bible to keep verses that deal specifically with how Christians ought to live out their Christianity and say, well, a better understanding of the text doesn't mean what that text seems to mean. And what happens is, 
the, the text of Scripture that would affect you to an obedience that would shine your light in this world is dismissed in the mind by some kind of exegesis. May I say that? That's water on the Spirit of God. If my exegesis keeps me sitting where I'm at spiritually, I need to get that changed. The Word of God is intended to move us in the direction of conformity to Jesus Christ in character and in conduct. Amen? And so then, you see, what's this have to do with our text? John was in fellowship with God. That's the best way to put it. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's interesting. It's the only time in the Bible that phrase is used, the Lord's Day. Every other time, it's the Day of the Lord. Let us not be confused. The Lord's Day and the Day of the Lord are not the same thing. The Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, specifically the Minor Prophets, it talks about it, but also in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians deals with as though the Day of the Lord is at hand. It's not talking about a 24-hour period of time. It's talking about a period of time on earth where God is pouring out His judgment. In other words, the Great Tribulation. That's the Day of the Lord. But when John says the Lord's Day, if you're an Adventist, you're going to think that's Saturday. I mean, I say this from a reasonable position. You read the book of Genesis. The Lord sanctified what day of the week? The seventh day. We must be intellectually honest when we deal with our Bibles. There is an intellectually honest appeal to say, well, maybe that's the Sabbath day. But nowhere else in the Bible is the Sabbath day called the Lord's day because it wasn't created for the Lord. It was created for man. Jesus said Sabbath was not made for the Lord. It was made for man. It was made for man's benefit. So the man would, first of all, physically rest from his labors. But we also know that the Sabbath was symbolic of Christ. It was symbolic and pictorial of the rest we have in him. So today we don't labor and labor and labor and finally rest. We rest in his righteousness and we labor from that rest. And I believe that that's, there's reference to that in this very verse. I was in the Spirit. I was relying on the Spirit of God and the testimony of Christ on the Lord's day. And so then, I, while it is not spelled out specifically, this is talking about the first day of the week, I think you have ample scripture to give strong evidence that it was. You say, why would that be? Well, the Lord's day, what's, what's he going to say before this chapter's over? I have the keys of death and hell. What day of the week did he bring those out on? First day of the week. First day of the week, the Lord Jesus came out of the grave with the keys of death and hell. Did he not? The entire context of this is resurrection. Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead and am alive forevermore. What day did that come about on? The entire context of the end of Revelation 1 is about the first day of the week. What took place on the first day of the week? And so undoubtedly, you know, on the first day of the week, John could think back to a few years back uh, prior, maybe 60 years back, and remember on a first day of a week, he and Peter ran to a tomb and found it empty. They went to an upper room that evening and Jesus was in their midst, not on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day of the week. You can read about that in John chapter 20. Eight days later, which would have been the first day of the week, again, guess what happens? They're assembled in the upper room for fear of the Jews, and who appears again? Jesus Christ. The only thing you find the early church doing on the seventh day of the week is preaching to unbelieving Jews in the synagogues. There are people who say, well, they met all the time on the Sabbath there in the book of Acts. Right, to preach to unbelieving Jews and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. They were not meeting for, for worship or services or like we do. We don't demand it as a law. I don't mean that. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But as such, we find significance in the first day of the week. And so I believe he's referring to Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And so let me give you a couple of other verses that would indicate that the churches were meeting and assembling and doing their, their, uh, their, their gift bringing and all these things first day of the week, at least by custom. 
uh, there in the book of Acts. So if you go to Acts chapter 20, and it's little snippets like this that make me think we're probably not going to make it through tonight, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. Acts chapter 20, I want to just reference here. Uh, this is the story of when Paul comes and preaches till midnight. All right, give me just a moment. Acts chapter 20, I'll see where we're going to start reading here. Let's look at verse 7. Let's go back to verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week when when the disciples came together to break bread. So what is it when disciples come together? What do we call that? It's called church. (laughs) The disciples came together to break bread. Breaking bread has two meanings. You can break bread for fellowship or you can break bread for the Lord's table. Okay, We'll find in this text they broke bread twice. It seems to me they broke bread for communion and they broke bread for a meal before Paul left, separate from one another. Okay, So upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And then you read about Eutychus, and the Bible says in verse 11, when he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till break of day, so he departed. seems like the original breaking of bread here has to do with the communion. We do know this. The disciples came together, meaning they came into one place on what day of the week? First day of the week. Now, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 16, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we have another reference to this. Again, not by commandment, but by pattern. We find the disciples at least regularly coming together on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. When I come, whomsoever you shall prove, so on and so forth. So we find Acts 20 for sure, an assembly of the disciples on the first day of the week. We find here the offerings were to be laid aside on the first day of the week. Then you find John in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being spoken of, the resurrected Christ talking to him, calling, saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Again, I won't demand it as a command. What I will say is the record of Scripture tells us and shows us the first day of the week is what had significance to the early church, not the seventh. May I say this? The only reference you'll have to Sabbath keeping as it relates to Christians is let no man judge you along those lines, Colossians chapter 2. We are under no obligation to Sabbath laws according to Colossians chapter 2. Amen? When you find any group, even if they're Baptists, Seventh-day Baptists they claim to be, trying to take you back to the Sabbath day, someone's out of kilter in their understanding of salvation. It's when you get into what is genuinely legalism where we're trying to attach a responsibility saying that the New Testament Christian is married to the law, we're married to something better than the law. And I'm getting into our series in Galatians right now. We're married to something better than the law. We're not married to a merely a document. We're married to the author of it. Is there a difference? We're not married merely to words on a page, which are wonderful. That, that, I'm talking about the letter of the law. We, we, are, we are indwelt by the author, the spirit of the law, which means if you, if you want to be under the law, you say we have 633 commandments. For us who are saved, we may have 10 million commandments because our, our responsibility is anything that the Spirit of God takes from Scripture and applies, we're to obey. It's far better. We're walking with the living God, not trying in the power of our flesh to simply do what He wants done according to a document, according to the law, which is good, but we have a power to perform. And so 
My, I say all that to say, when you find someone trying to take you back to the Sabbath, bells, whistles, red and yellow flags should be flipping up everywhere. We are not Sabbath keepers because we're not under the law. We are, we are bound to Christ. It only makes sense in the context of Scripture that the Lord's day, no, 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 the Lord's day is not the seventh day. That's a day of rest. How many of you find that those who are preaching the Sabbath, if they won't outright say it's necessary to keep the Sabbath to prove you're really saved, they're at least saying that's the day that Christians ought to worship because that's been... Now, that is a symbol of we're going back to the law and depending on our performance of God's law somehow as part of our righteousness. Our righteousness is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith is manifest in what we do. But may I say, what we do has nothing to do whatsoever with making us righteous. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. That's the context of Revelation 1 as well. So I think the strong, strong evidence of Scripture Strong enough, I'm willing to teach it to you tonight. The Lord's Day, uh, based on everything we just looked at, the fact that Christ raised from the dead on the first day of the week, the early church was customarily meeting on the first day of the week, and then John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day being talked to about the resurrection which occurred on the first day of the week. Your mind and heart have to say that the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. And so, uh, it, it is, it's, again, the only time that, that term is ever used in the Bible is right here, and that kind of, of verbiage isn't used I think, but in one of the place, as far as uh, the Lord as in, in possession of a day or a time or so forth. So anyway, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That being John's position, I think that the, the emphasis, though we've talked about what the Lord's day is, is more important to say what was John's spiritual disposition on this day of the week. He's in the Spirit. Now, how do you end up in the Spirit on the Lord's day? Walk in the Spirit every other day. I don't believe it was, well, I wasn't in the Spirit on all the other days, but on the Lord's Day I was. No, the Lord's Day came around, and guess what? He was in the Spirit when it showed up. May I say this? If you're waiting to get to church to get in the Spirit, you're probably not going to. You need to be in the Spirit when you show up. The best way to do that is to walk in the Spirit on, on Monday, walk in the Spirit on Tuesday, walk in the Spirit on Wednesday, walk in the Spirit on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday, and then when the first day comes, you're not trying to get right, you're coming into it right. Walk in the Spirit every day. So when the Lord's Day came, John wasn't frantically trying to get right with God. He was already there. Church is not about getting us right with God. It's about helping us stay in tune with the Lord and in fellowship with one another so we can serve God effectively. Here's John. By the way, who's helping John stay in the Spirit? Where's his accountability partners? I'm not against that, but he doesn't have any. He was mature enough in his faith to walk with the Lord when it was just he and God. I think that's another emphasis that must be made. Walking in the Spirit has not to do with giving the appearance we are in the Spirit or in the, in the will of the Lord to others. Walking in the Spirit is something that's between a man and God. Meaning, for you to walk in the Spirit, there has to be two people, you and the Holy Spirit. I was in the Spirit. By the way, this is called integrity. It's called integrity. John was on the Isle of Patmos all by himself on the Lord's Day, what he would have been if he were assembling with the church at Ephesus on the Lord's Day. He was in the Spirit. We need to stay right in our relationship with the Lord when no one else but God is watching. Amen? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's going to be key to what comes next. The disposition of his heart and his mind uh, opened his heart and his mind to the Word of God. There are people that come to church week in, week out. They hear the same messages you do and get absolutely nothing out of them. You can hear a sermon and say, man, and it could be by myself, it could be by somebody else, 
it's the word of God being preached and God lights your heart up with that and man encourages you and you say to somebody else, you need to hear this message. And they listen to it and they're like, what'd you think? Uh, I, I, which one was that? What was it about? <laughs> we talk about this all the time. You have two people sitting on a pew. One of them yawning the whole time waiting for it to be done and the other one on the edge of his pew taking notes. What is the difference? The disposition of heart. How I've approached the word of God. You see, John was able to hear the Lord speak when he spoke. And he heard him loudly and clearly because he was in a right relation of fellowship with the Lord. Throughout this book, you're going to hear the Lord Jesus say, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. There are those who don't have ears to hear. The heart and the ears are directly connected. And when the heart is hard, the ears are deaf. The heart and the eyes are directly connected. When the heart is hard, the eyes are blind. And John was not in that case. John was in the spirit. His heart was in tune with the Lord. Therefore, his ears were wide open and his eyes were wide open so he could see clearly and hear clearly. So his disposition seen in verse 10, his discernment begins in verse, uh, the end of verse 10 there in verse 11. He begins to hear a voice. The Bible says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and heard behind me a great voice as of a... Trumpet. Now, the voice of God is likened to a trumpet. The voice of the archangel is likened to a trumpet. And so uh, the voice is like a trumpet. And you know throughout the Bible, the trumpet sounded many different things. It was a sound that was played. If you read the law, there were three different kinds of trumpets. There was a trumpet played for assembly. There was a trumpet played for when it's time to pack up the camp and move. And then there was a trumpet for warfare. But the trumpet signified something's about to happen. Right, You need to pay attention. It was an alarm call, a signal call. And so he heard a voice as of a trumpet, verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turn to see the voice. So he hears the voice first, and he turns to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Let me give you just a few comments on what he discerns here. He hears this voice as of a trumpet. He hears it saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Now you know in verse 8, uh, the Lord is saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so uh, the repetition of this, we'll hear it again throughout the book. I am Alpha and Omega takes us back to I am the first and the last in the book of Isaiah. It is Jehovah God. But then it's Jesus Christ here in verse 11 saying, I am Alpha and Omega. It's interesting to me, before he tells John what he wants him to know, he reminds him of who he is. It's very important you and I, as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we keep very clear in our minds as to who he is, what his identity is. We have, how many know of identity theft? We've all heard of it. This week, uh, my wife got a text and someone trying to scam her uh, through Amazon and trying to, to get our information and so forth, someone had tapped our identity enough to know how to get her phone number and text. And so you have people that are identity thieves. They will, if they can, take your social security number, take your account numbers and project themselves as you. There are those today stealing the identity of Christ. I believe this. We have devils today, demons, saying, teaching people things. The Bible says we have doctrines of devils. There will be many that come and say, I am Christ. We have, we have spirits today saying, this is of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ. And it projects and presents Jesus Christ, for instance, as someone capable of sin. I have a conversation with a man today, and he was trying to fathom how Jesus as a child did not disobey his parents. He said, well, how's that possible? And so on and so forth. 
Well, he's the son of God. He did not disobey. So we have people today who think Jesus sinned and that makes him more like us and makes him more touchable. May I say he was like us in becoming a servant in human flesh, but unlike us, the Bible says separate from sinners because he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so we must remember who Jesus Christ is. You know that every false religion loves to portray him in weakness. The Catholics love to portray him as a babe in the manger. They love to portray him stripped of his clothing and hanging on a cross. I don't think it looks anything like him. But they love to symbolize Jesus in his weakness. And then they make him look like some idol from some fairy tale by the way he's drawn and portrayed. Make make no mistake, art that portrays Jesus is generally done by people who do not believe in him. They're idolaters normally. That's why they need to make some image of him. God intentionally gives us very little physical description of Jesus Christ. Very little. You know why? What we focus on? That person's like Jesus. Look at him. It has nothing to do with it. And No, we don't need a physical image. We have an image of who he is. And the last picture we have of Christ is what we have in the book of Revelation. John is being spoken to. No one knew the Lord Jesus in the flesh more closely than John of all his apostles. And yet, Jesus is reminding him, I am Alpha and Omega. Don't forget, John is the one who pinned down, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then the Word, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. May I say this, when the Lord is communing with you, one of the things he is going to remind you of is who he is. We are not able to properly see ourselves and our surroundings outside of looking at through the lens of who Jesus Christ is. He is Alpha, he is the Creator, and Omega. He is the beginning, he is the end, he is the author, and the finisher. How many of you have ever started a project and failed to finish it? I love my Grandpa Charles. Wonderful, sweet, good, godly man. But Grandpa was known for starting projects and them never getting done. We started a project on an old 53 Chevrolet truck. It never got finished. We started a project on rebuilding an old tractor. It never got done. I said, we. He and I, I work with him, tinker around with it. I mean, he had projects everywhere. Started, authored, but not finished. Now, you know why? Because there were good intentions, not enough time, not enough money, not enough energy. You name it. Jesus Christ has not started something he can't finish. He is the author He is the finisher. He is the first letter of the alphabet. He is the last letter, meaning he is the source of all knowledge. He knows all things. He is the source of all wisdom. He is the creator of language. I get frustrated with people trying to act like God doesn't know how to use language. Oh, that he had the linguists of our day to educate him a little bit, to help God understand how to communicate with man. The problem with communication between God and man is not on God's side. He has no problem with languages. He created them. He confounded them. He gave them back again on Pentecost to prove that he could and to get his word out. God has no problem communicating. He is the creator of alphabet written and spoken. He is the living word. (laughs) And so today it's no wonder that the word is under attack. That's a direct attack on the person of Jesus Christ. He's not only the word. He's the alphabet that made the word. Amen. That's... That's good preaching because it's about him. Amen. John says, and hears, I heard, I'm Alpha and Omega. When you and I are hearing, when you're in the Spirit, man, something. When in the Spirit, where was John's focus turned? On Jesus 
Christ. Someone says, boy, I was in the Spirit, and I was so in the Spirit that everyone's attention was drawn to me. Nonsense. He says, what's so wrong with the charismatic movement? Supposedly when you're in the Spirit, everybody's hearing you shouting, listening to you rattle off in tongues, listening to you go into some kind of a fit and a tirade, getting attention for some preacher, not getting our mind on Christ. And this, may I say this, one of the marks of Spirit-filled music. How many of you have ever heard someone with a tremendous amount of ability sing music, but when they're done singing, you thought, boy, they did a well job, but they had your mind on the Lord, not on them and how they performed. It's a mark of Spirit-filled music. It's a mark of Spirit-filled preaching. Our hearts and minds are turned toward Christ, Christ, Christ. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and the first thing he hears, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Then he's given some instruction. And what thou seest, isn't it interesting? Before he's going to tell John to write, he reminds him, I am the alphabet, first letter and the last. What thou seest write in a book, I think it's a reminder to John that the Lord knows how to communicate, and he's going to tell John what to communicate should remind us we have a preserved Bible tonight. What thou seest, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, so on and so forth. And we've already dealt with the fact that when the Lord decided to communicate his mind about future things, he did not deliver it to the government. He did not deliver it to the individual Christian. He didn't deliver it to a, a unique family, an elite Christian family. He delivered his truth through the Apostle John to churches. Churches are stewards of the Word of God. I love it today. In this country, God was so gracious to this country back in the 60s and 70s, particularly among independent Baptists. He stirred up a number of preachers to say, we can't have publishing houses printing our Bibles. We need to print our own Bibles. And by the way, you want to pray about a ministry I wish the Lord would put in Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church's hand is the ability to print God's Word right here. I don't know if He'll ever let us do that, but boy, if He would, I'd love to. No one in the Northwest is printing John and Romans. We have to send off and have them shipped. I think it would be wonderful to print all our own Bibles and print our John and Romans. And that's a long way out. And God may never let us do that. But it is local church responsibility to steward the Word of God. So today, we have the ability not to have to, to pay if we don't want to. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a printing house necessarily print it. But how many of you understand printing companies get a hold of the Word of God? They put a copyright on it and they change it for monetary purposes. They get owned by false religions and so forth. And so God gave his truth to local churches. And so uh, that's where, by the way, isn't that where the Bible was first delivered, the New Testament, into the hands of local churches? We are not to outsource our responsibilities to a lost and dying world. That's our job to handle the word of God and so uh, and to steward it. And so that's a different message, I suppose, for a different day. John's discernment, though, is he is hearing this voice behind him saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, what you see, write in the book. He's going to be given some direction. Verse 11, write these things in the book. Verse 19, he'll be reminded of that. Write the things which thou hast seen. We'll say a little bit more about verse 19 when we get there. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So twice in chapter 1, he is commanded not to remember but to write. These things write in a book. And again, I've preached an entire message on that. How many times throughout the Bible we have it recorded that God told men, the things that I've told you, write them in a book. Joshua, Moses was told it. Joshua was told to rehearse it. The kings of Israel were told to write it, not only to rehearse it, but to write it in a book. They were supposed to have a copy of their own, handwritten. May I say this? You want a good practice as a Christian? Write Bible verses. One of the things we had our Bible Institute students do last year, and we'll have it again this year, is to write Scripture verses. It is Good for us. These young men wrote 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus wrote the whole books out. I'll guarantee you when you read it again, there's going to be portions that are familiar to you because you wrote it. 
And I encourage you, especially in a day where we do more typing than writing, there's value in writing uh, these things right in the book. And I'm not saying we're writing more Bible. We have all the Bible we need. But for us to write the Bible certainly helps us retain it. And God chose to communicate to us in written form. Today, how many of you would buy a house that were, your, your, your agreement was not in writing? Anybody? If you would, I got some property I want to sell you. <laughs> you know as well as I do, you, to not have it in writing, I would even say this, two people that trust each other intrinsically, in order to preserve that trust, you know what they're going to do? They're going to put it in writing. I, I have gone into agreements with other Christians, at times members of this church, and we mutually agreed. Let's put this in writing for your sake, for my sake, so that we keep our trust one another. Amen? Writing is the most powerful form of communication. It will be until the Lord returns. He gave us his word in writing. And so these things write in a book. John given some direction. And then in verses 12 through 16, we will, this is as far as we're going to make it tonight. So I told you we'd try. We have two more points we'll get to in a few weeks. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice. So he's heard the voice. I think it's very interesting. As always, faith cometh by hearing. John's going to see a lot of things. But before he could see anything, he had to have an ear to hear. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw. So he heard first, and then being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And of course, recently we dealt in Sunday school the church uh, as a, uh, pictured as a candlestick, the pillar and ground of the truth. Verse 13, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When we read this, hairs white like wool, as white as snow, eyes as a flame of fire, what image do you get, weakness or strength? Everything here is dealing with his power. Our our Lord and our Savior is demonstrated here in power and might and strength. He came in meekness, not weakness, meekness. He humbled himself. Weakness is strength laid by for the benefit of another weak one. The best way I can explain meekness is a, a big, strong man dealing with an infant child that he loves very much. He has the ability to crush that child, but because he loves him, he wouldn't dream of it. So he handles him very gently and restrains his strength in order to bless the one that's in his hand. When Christ came to us as the Son of Man, and here he's like the Son of Man, it's a vision, it's a portrayal, and he's like the Son of Man, but not like any Son of Man you've ever known. (laughs) So he's he's still in flesh, but he's the God-man. That's why he's called like the Son of Man. But here what you see is a picture of absolute strength. His hair's white like wool, deals with his purity and his sinlessness as white as snow. It not only deals with his sinlessness, it deals with the depth of his wisdom. He's the ancient of days. Uh, he is the counselor, as Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says. Wisdom is connected with the hoary head in the book of Proverbs. Meaning, white hair is enough time to gain some experiential wisdom. He's, remember, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's got white hair. God knows more than we do. Who's his instructor? Who's going to teach the Lord? In an age of knowledge and wisdom, I'm afraid many times, even as Christians, we think we've gotten smarter than the Holy Spirit. 
No, no, no. The Lord is the author of all wisdom. He's got hair that's white that speaks of his purity, but also speaks of, of his being a sage. He's filled with wisdom. He has knowledge of all the ages. And so his eyes were as a flame of fire. Eyes with a flame of fire means you can see through anything. There's no escaping the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Have you ever seen somebody or met somebody, and there are certain things you didn't want them to pick up on? Maybe, uh, maybe it was an, an older person, and it's like you couldn't hide anything from them. Like It's like they can see right through you. They can, they can read the countenance of your face. They can read your bodily disposition. I mean, you start to even veer one iota from the truth and you can tell they know you're starting to lie and you want to crawl under a bush somewhere and say, don't be around me. Now, if you've ever met a human like that, they're very limited. There's not a human that can't be fooled. Truth? Not him. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees right through every excuse made by man. That's why Romans 1 says the unbelievers will be without excuse. And so then eyes as a flame of fire. Uh, the Bible says his feet were uh, like unto fine brass. Now let's think about Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he'll bruise his head. Now we don't have, you don't bruise brass. No, these feet have been tested and tried in adversity. They've, they've been through the furnace of adversity, the cross. Instead of, these are feet that have been pierced with nails, but never again. They're like brass now. He has feet that are going to crush his enemies under his feet. That's why they're brass. Brass speaks of judgment when the Lord Jesus comes. Have you ever heard, don't tread on me? I'll tell you what, Jesus will tread on whomsoever he desires. In the book of Revelation, you'll find he comes with a rod of iron. And he's going to rule as such. His feet are like brass, as if they burned in a furnace, meaning it is hardened brass, it's tempered brass, it's shining with its ability to judge. His feet are like brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. How many of you have ever been to the falls up in the Yak? If you have, Copper Falls, some of these places, a tremendous waterfall. You stand so close, you have to shout at each other to hear one another. And what do many waters have? Force, power. Now, I'm thankful the Spirit of God will speak to us with a still, small voice. But here, what we're seeing is His voice will overpower any dissenting voice. His voice is as the sound of many waters. Uh, that's still, again, speaking of power and strength. And He had in His right hand seven stars. Those are seven angels. What about that? He's got angels in His right hand. That means he created them. They're under his power, his control. All right, seven stars. They're the, the angels of the seven churches. We'll say more about that later. It says he has in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Psalm 149, verse 6, I love this. Do you know where the sword that comes out of his mouth is in relation to you and I as saints? The Bible says it's in our hand. Psalm 149, verse 6. I'll read this. We're just about done for tonight. Psalm 149, verse 6. The Bible says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. Talking about the saints. Verse 5 says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. 
what comes out of his mouth. Do you think that's on accident that the Bible portrays what's in his mouth as in our hand? Right in the middle of the Lord saying these things right in a book? Some people say, oh, that's a stretch. You'd have to stretch to not know that's what he's talking about. You have to bend your head and put it in the sand to know he's not talking about your Bible. Amen? Two-edged sword in his mouth is in my hand and piercing my heart. Woo, that's good. Amen? Uh, the fact of the matter is God has given us his word and two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. God's word cuts you either way. It will not return void. You oppose it, it'll cut you and prove you're wrong. You believe it and it'll affirm you and prove you're right. You know this, God's word will do its work. Chris King used to say all the time, I don't know if he... And we already heard it, but he said, somebody stands and tells you the Bible doesn't work, treat it like a two-edged sword. Pull it out, run it through them, and prove to them it does. I agree with that. He says, I don't believe the Bible. Don't wait and try to convince them to believe the Bible. You know how the best way to convince somebody the Bible is true? Use it on them. Well, I don't believe God created the heaven and the earth. But he did. Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Are you saying that's a lie? <laughs> Just use it. If you spend your day trying to convince somebody, my sword is sharp. Really, look at it. See how sharp it is? Run them through with it. It'll cut. Amen? Not for the purpose of destruction. I don't mean that. You know, the devil will tell you, you can't trust that Bible. Quote it to him and watch what he does. Quote him that book and watch him run. Satan can handle your mental prowess all day long. He can handle my mental prowess all day long. You give him God's word, he'll run like a scalded dog. That's my eastern Tennessee coming out of me. If you've never seen a scalded dog run, try it sometime. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not advocating that. They'll, they'll, they'll run. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You say, what's this have to do with the revelation? A two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. That's because he is the S-U-N, son of righteousness with healing in his wings. How many of us get the picture of our Savior here as one of great strength? When you're in the Spirit on the Lord's day, there are people today claiming to be in the Spirit and they're minimizing the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear it in phrasing and verbiage like this. We have to refer to Him in first name. How many of you ever know that watch when it became trendy in the workplace and even in church? We don't, we don't call somebody sir, ma'am, mister, miss. No, it's just first name basis. How many of you ever had people get offended at you? You call them a thank you, sir. I'm not in the army anymore. Call me so and so. They're offended. It's a, you're showing, you know, you're showing respect and authority and so forth. Many today refuse to refer to the Lord as the Lord or Christ. He's just Jesus. Uh, isn't I, I was talking to Jesus today. Well, that's wonderful. But remember who He is. And when you're in the Spirit, He does not become your chum who lives next door. You're reminded He's your Creator. You're reminded he's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You're reminded that he has feet like brass and a voice that is the sound of many waters. I don't find people saying, oh, Jesus, my buddy. Oh, That's not what John did on the Lord's day and he's in the spirit. We'll find him next week, in a few weeks. The next point is his contrition. He's on his face trembling. This is the same John who had laid his head over on Jesus' bosom and said, Lord, who is it that will betray you? Not here. Mm-hmm. Now when he's seen Christ in his glory, he's on his face. May the Lord help us to listen to the Holy Spirit of God and get a proper view of our Savior. I think the book of Revelation will help us with that. Amen? Help us get a good view of who our Savior is and who's coming again and why he's worthy of our 
unfettered worship. Amen?